Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Barbican Screen Talks. Hello and welcome to this the first in a new series of Barbican Screen Talks, where we re-release exclusive conversations with some of the world's leading filmmakers and film fans. We've been recording Q&A sessions after Barbican screenings for decades, building up a formidable collection of interviews. Now we've gone back to the archive, dusted off the tapes, and we'll be releasing a new Screen Talk every month. Later in the series, we'll hear from the likes of King of Surrealism, Terry Gilliam, and Amara Sante, director of Bell and the United Kingdom. But we start with a man who's been described as the UK's foremost political filmmaker. Ken Loach has been using film to explore themes of class, conflict and social change for over 50 years. In 1966, his TV drama Kathy Come Home provoked such a reaction, it led to a change in the homeless laws and the creation of the charity crisis. His prolific filmmaking career includes Poor Cow, Kez, the Spanish Civil War story Land and Freedom, and the powerful I, Daniel Blake. In this interview from 2006, Ken Loach talks to Time Out film editor Dave Calhoun about The Wind That Shakes the Barley, starring Killian Murphy. This film gave Loach his first Palme d'Or win at Cannes, but it also marked one of the most controversial periods of an always controversial career. Like Hidden Agenda, made 16 years earlier, the film was decried as IRA propaganda by some in the press, a charge that Loach eloquently addresses here. Set in Cork in the early 1920s, it tells the tale of two brothers, Damien and Teddy, who fight in a guerrilla war for an independent island. Their struggle against the British eventually results in a treaty to end the bloodshed and the establishment of the Irish Free State. But despite this apparent victory, civil war erupts, and families who fought together now find themselves on opposing sides. In the interview you're about to hear, Ken Loach talks about the reaction to this film. He explains how he used local actors and cork locations for authenticity, and gives his take on why his films are more popular, even exotic, with international audiences. I'm Ellen E. Jones, and this is Barbican Screen Talks with Ken Loach. Hi, everybody. Just like to add to that by welcoming Ken Loach here on behalf of the Barbican this evening. Thanks so much. I want to start, Ken, by talking about the 
Yes, we're filming the film last year. Uh, you, you filmed it in entirely in County Cork last, I think I'm right, last July and August, or last, last summer. Um, and I remember I came on the set and was very aware that you'd, you were using all Cork locations. Uh, almost your cast was almost exclusively from Cork. Um, and I think where they weren't was because the characters actually demanded it. And a lot of the extras were people from, from the local areas. A lot of the crew were from Cork as well. So I want to ask you, through, through making this film and this particular story, there in County Cork now, 85, 86 years on from, from when it was set, how, how raw is the memory of, of that period of Irish history, of, of the experience of black and tans coming into the area, of the lead-up to the treaty in 1921 and the subsequent civil war? How raw did it, did it appear from, from you talking to people who you were working with, people who you met? Um, I, I think it was um, very vivid in people's memories. I mean, initially people, some people said, well, you know, we, we don't really want to talk about it now because the wounds are still, uh, are still felt. But of course, once people did start to talk, then they, they did talk. And you felt almost every field had uh, got some story to tell. Um, it was it was very vivid in people's memories. We, we when we were wrecking, we went to one old farm, um, miles away from anywhere, down a single track, and the guy came to the door and said, "What are we doing?" And we explained, and he said, ah, "I said I, I have Tom Barry's book by my bedside. I was reading it last night, and reeled off all the, the the the, the people and the incidents. So I think it's very vivid. Even the school kids know the basic story, mm. which contrasts with this side of the. RSC, where people say they know very little about it, which um, which is quite sad, really. Well, that, um, thinking of those memories and how much it's still in in people's memories as you experienced it in Ireland. Obviously, there's the experience of the black and tans being there, but how much did you find that the the theme of, of brother against brother was coming up, and the memory of that was coming up, which is which is a theme that you you embrace yes. directly in this yes. in this film. Um, well, again, I mean that was very strong. I mean, people still say there are pubs that are free state pubs and anti-republican pubs and people talk of families that still haven't spoken um, or family members that still haven't spoken mm. and it was extraordinarily brutal when, when the war turned to the republican side fighting each other I mean in the town we shot at in Bandon there's a statue to Sean Hales and Sean Hales was um, a free state member of parliament member of the Doyle and he was assassinated and his brother Tom Hales was a Republican, and he'd had his fingernails pulled out by the British, rather, as we show in Teddy's case. So that was brother against brother. And there was a case of, of Kevin O'Higgins, who was a, a member of the Free State Government, who signed the execution papers for the man who'd been the best man at his wedding. And so it, it, was, it was very cruel. Uh, I'd, I'd like to ask you about some of the reaction has already been to, to the film. I mean, since, mm. obviously, it showed in Cannes in competition mm. and it went on to win the Palme d'Or. And obviously, since then, there's been a lot of commentary in, in both in the newspapers and the radio and on television as well mm. about the film. A lot of it, a lot of it fairly negative. Mm. Um, I think you said going into Cannes, maybe at one of the early press conferences or an interview before, that you didn't expect any controversy around this film. Is that, is that true? Well, it, it was a joke, really. <laughs> um, and we thought it'd be a bit. We didn't think it'd be as vicious as it was. But before we get to the, before we leave the, the Palm Door, there's, um, but one of the Irish lads in the film is from a small town, and the local paper had, um, ran an exclusive, it says, local man wins cart door. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
<laughs> it, it, it only needed to add a few scooters and we'd have... Uh, <laughs> but, um, no, the, the, um, the, the press reaction was, was extraordinary. And it was, it was over a short few days, just after we'd won the, the cart door. And um, <laughs> it was... Um, it was extraordinary. I mean, you know, well, I don't give it airtime, really, by going over it too much, but it, it, it was... Well, it was very vicious, and, but there are always idiots who will write kind of vicious stuff and personal abuse. The, the two things surprised me, or there were two things occurred to us, really. One is, it's one thing for some maverick to write it. It's another for an editor to commission it and put it in the paper. You know, that's, that's serious. You know, like comparing like me to a Nazi propagandist. Or, you know, it's, it's very extreme, that. And, mm. and one writer said he, he didn't need to see the film to write about it any more than he needed to read Mein Kampf to know what a Laos Hitler was. I mean, this is... It's, it's comic, but it's, it's very savage. And, and it occurred to us that if... Um, that it is the editors who commission that and, and put in... And the journal... I mean, there's several examples. I won't bore you by going into them, where the journalism was just plain bad journalism. They were saying stuff that just wasn't, that just on a factual basis was incorrect. But the other point that struck us is that this really is the breeding ground for fascism, because it, it's fine to attack someone like me, because I'm middle class and white and have got lots of pals. But to write that kind of abuse about, you know, an immigrant community or asylum seekers or people who are in, you know, vulnerable then that becomes, then it's, you know, get the bastards out, and then it's the breeding ground for fascism, and it's a short step to the BNP. So I think, I think it's, it's really, it's, that kind of journalism is the breeding ground for fascism. Really. I mean, I think the, the point that was mainly, or the, the theme that was repeated again and again was your treatment of, or the perceived treatment of the, the British mm. characters mm. in the film, mm. especially the troop, essentially the troops, and also the landowner. I'm sure you were aware that that was likely to be controversial when you were making it, but I was wondering whether... What other areas of the film, for you, when you, when you were writing it, with, when, when Paul Laverty was writing it, when, mm-hmm. when you were discussing it, which, which other areas did you feel were the most sensitive and you felt needed the most research? Because um, there, 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 there are other themes in there, mm-hmm. especially the, um, I mean, the argument over whether Ireland should have gone in a socialist direction or not, which, which mm-hmm. to me seems to be key to the film and which is probably, to any, to any student of this period, much more controversial than any depiction of... The, um, the British. I mean, the, how yes. how you interpret that, and what your own opinion of that is. Was yes. that, you, for example, was that one area which you were aware was? Sensitive? Yes. Yes. I mean, the, the, there's a lot in what you said. I mean, on the treatment of the British, just mm. just to set the record straight, um, we were very anxious to be as truthful as we could. So all the soldiers that you see, all the British soldiers, certainly all the ones taking main part, are British ex-soldiers, mm. and. We had two uh, sergeants from the Irish Army with us. The British Army wouldn't collaborate, not surprisingly, nor, nor the TA. And, um, <laughs> and um, even for a, a trip across with free Guinness, they wouldn't come. So anyway. but the, um, and we also had a, the, an, the CO, the ex-CO from the barracks in Cork. Terrific guy. Well, they all were. And we said to them, I d- we don't want any crazy heroics don't play at being soldiers. This is the group, this is the platoon you've got, this is the squad you've got, this is the area, now how do you do it as, as professionals? How do you go in, what do you do? And they would tell me how it should be done, and then they did it that way. 
So that, that, that was how it was done. But as to the... I, I brought a couple of quotes along thinking that this might come up. And um, apart from the specific incidents, which of course are, were absolutely researched, but the kind of things that were said at the time by senior figures, both in the army and in the establishment, were, were things like this. This is um, General Goff, obviously a senior figure in the army, uh, March 1921, and, and he wrote this. He wrote, Law and order have given place to a bloody and brutal anarchy in which armed agents of the crown violate every law in aimless and vindictive savagery. Now that was General Goff in 1921, just the time that this was happening. So that's um, coming from the establishment. That's coming from the establishment. Uh, Sir Maurice Hankey, who was Secretary of the Cabinet, uh, recorded Lloyd George, because people were complaining to Lloyd George and saying, you know, you can't let this st stuff go on. And Lloyd George's response, according to the Cabinet Secretary, was this, in his diary. He said, Lloyd George strongly defended murder reprisals. He showed that there had been, from time immemorial, been resorted to in difficult times in Ireland. In other words, it was carrying on the policies of the Elizabethan armies of Cromwell down to the present day. And the Labour Commission from the Labour Party went over, not identified with Sinn Féin by any means, and their report said that the towns and the Orgses were compelling the whole Irish people, men, women and children, to live in an atmosphere of sheer terror. Now that's, that's the record of the time, really. Um, so we, we actually could have gone much further. I mean, you know, we could have pulled teeth out rather than nails. Um, there was a man, an uncle of one of the men who was working on the film. His uncle had been shot, and then when he was still alive, tied to the back of a cart and dragged along a rocky road till he was dead. There was a woman standing with a child in her arms who was shot, shot dead with the child in her arms. I mean, you could go on and on and on. Yeah. The, the other areas that are, are really... Um, as you say, really interesting and, and sensitive. Well, well you, you mentioned the, the socialist strand, the, the strand epitomised by James Connolly, one of the leaders of the Easter Rising. Mm. And the Easter Rising had uh, both a nationalist and a socialist element in the leadership. And the proclamation and the, the social programme of the First Doyle had, as they say in the film, had a very strong what I guess we would call socialist content. It, uh, the, it want, they wanted to construct a society where the land was held in common. I mean, remember, this is at the time of 19... just after 19, the October Revolution in 1917. So the ideas are very current. It's not like some, you know, some desperate left-wing sect seizing power. I mean, th this was very current. That programme was voted on by the majority of the Irish people. So it, it was a mainstream series of ideas. But then, within the Republican movement, the, the bourgeois leadership uh, gained control. Um, and certainly in West Cork, where we did it, the, uh, the socialist element was not particularly strong. But we felt that to do a film which missed it out, we, you'd, you'd miss out one of the dynamic elements in the, whole, in the whole process. So that's why Dan drove his train. It seems that a lot of the misguided reaction to the film highlights the danger of taking an anachronistic response, of having an anachronistic reaction to the film. As soon as the words British and IRA are mentioned, it's immediately assumed by some commentator that you're talking about the situation now. I mean, I think one of the journalists asked, why, do you hate, why does he hate our country so much? So, so, so mm -hmm. in, assuming that 
if, if, you, if you make a film which is critical of the British in the 1920s, you make a film which is critical of the British now. So there's that proviso about relating it to, to these days. And I know you've spoken against the idea that the film is, I mean, just to put it simply, actually about Iraq. But surely there are... I'm interested to hear what you think about themes that are running through the film to do with occupation and civilian reaction to occupation and how, and how far you do think they are relevant and how far they did inform you wanting to make the film now. Because I know, I know it's a film which you've wanted to make for a long time, but I'm wondering whether the situation in Iraq now um, influenced the actual timing. Um, no, it didn't at all. Um, we were working on it before the invasion. Yeah. And I certainly wouldn't want to make any glib parallels. I mean, obviously, there are, there are big differences. But I think an army of occupation, which is there against the wishes of the civilian population, certain, certain things start to happen. Um, the, the attitude of, of the arms, of young men armed to the teeth who are in danger, obviously in danger, they will then uh, retreat into a kind of bunker mentality. I mean, this is what I, we heard from soldiers. This isn't, I mean, this is my reporting what I was told. They will then retreat into a bunker mentality. One act of violence will lead to another act of violence, will lead to a bigger reprisal. Then there's, the people that they're, they're controlling, they start to see as less than themselves. Otherwise, you know, how do you deal with them? And the whole kind of vicious circle sets up. Um, and currently, we have an illegal an army illegally occupying another country. So, I guess there are there are parallels. I, I mean, other people have made a parallel in uh, in Palestine, where again an occupied country, one political group is in conflict with another political group, and in a sense that. The, the, the pressures of the occupation and, and, and the frustrations of the occupation lead to that kind of conflict, as in, obviously happened in, in Ireland too. Uh, by the end of this film, the characters of Damien and Teddy very much represent the, the divide on the, uh, within the Irish Civil War. I mean, Dam Damien represents, you could say, more, a more idealistic viewpoint that it could, could, to continue to fight could lead to a socialist Ireland as well as a free Ireland, whereas... Teddy's point of view seems to be much, much, much more, you could say, pragmatic. Much more to do with comfort and security, and and the belief that the treaty was was good enough at the time. I was wondering how what your thoughts were and Paul Lamerty's thoughts when writing the script. Did you feel you sympathised more with Damien's point of view? And do you, do you think at that point in Ireland, that, um, that was actually a lost opportunity for Ireland, and, and, and well, it was actually that alternative was actually possible and, and preferable. I, I don't know. I really don't know. And, and we, we felt it was impossible to to say, mm. or at least it was a cheap <clears throat> shot to say, well, they should have done this or they should have done that. I think people were desperate to live in peace. Mm. I think everybody felt. I mean, it's ironic because the, the, those who supported the treaty felt that the north, that the boundary would dissolve because it was unsustainable. And, and that it was, it was a staging post, it was a platform, and the, what they could go on to achieve everything they wanted. Some thought that, I guess others thought, um, we, can keep, uh, we can keep the property relationships as they are, and we can, be, we can be the successful Irish businessmen, where at the moment we're just dominated by British business. So I guess that, that, that there was a kind of business viewpoint to the pro-treaty side. But the big thing there, I mean, there was, was hugely influential, was this the threat of, of immediate and terrible war. And it's exactly what happened in Nicaragua when the, uh, the Sandinistas suffered the, the terror war by the Contras, paid for by the US. And the election came up and the US said, if you vote the Sandinista back in, this terror will continue. 
So of course they lost the election. And I think that, I don't think we can underestimate that. And we, what was important for us was that both arguments were put as well as they possibly could so that you know, both Teddy and Damien are men of integrity and the people around them. There's no, dare I coin a phrase, hidden agenda here. <laughs> they're, um, you know, they, 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 they've got nothing up their sleeve. I mean, they're saying what they really believe and that there's a logic to both positions. And that was, that was the cunning of the British evaluating the treaty. You know, they, they, we, we place it there, we'll split them down the middle, which is what they did. Do, do you find it easy to get those, those scenes of um, political debate correct mm. dramatically and palatable dramatically? I'm thinking, I'm thinking specifically of the scene towards the end where the, idea, the, the, the different ideas floating about to do with the, which lead to the Irish Civil War are, are there mm. in a meeting, in a room. And so, how do, you, do you find that difficult, difficult to deal with dramatically? Um, well, I mean, the, the arguments have to live in the people. I mean, they, they have to live in the people, and, and there has to be... I mean, they're not, it's not a scene that you can do without a lot of preparation, um, which we did, and we worked with historian from Cork University, and we... Um, obviously, the people read a lot, um, and we, we were kind of testing the things out as we were doing, going through the film up to that point, and testing our people's positions, so that when we came to it, we knew that Rory would be the plain nationalist who would not bend his knee to the king, come what may. Mm. You know, and, and we knew that Congo was a man who was staking everything on this. You know, I mean, they'd all made huge sacrifices. They weren't going to give up until they'd really got what they wanted. And we knew that there were some, you know, like Leo, the character played by Frank Burke, who was, a, who was an organiser and, and, and a commander and very thoughtful about how things should be. So, you know, people's positions are being prepared in advance. And, I mean, they're all familiar with the arguments. And Paul's script, I mean, was... I mean, he writes this kind of dialogue brilliantly. Um, so there was... They're both a personal passion, but... Well, what we tried to do anyway was to really precisely uh, elucidate the main strands of what was at stake. Were you able to apply your, your usual method of holding back the script from actors and, and shooting chronologically with this film as much as much as yeah. as, as other films? Yes. Da Damien didn't know he was going to die. Yeah. <laughs> Not till Dan was shot, and then they. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Lost, and then I think he he, he thought it then. Um, but once once he was caught and once he was in prison, there was really no way out. But he didn't. I mean, it's not important. But but in the scene where the last scene between the two brothers, only Teddy had the line. I think only Teddy had the line about write your letters, you'll be shot at dawn. Can I begin to take questions from the audience, please? Or, or opinions. <laughs> True. Um, uh, at the moment, um, obviously films sort of um, evoked passion in people um, and sort of shake the scene up a bit have been produced for a long time. But um, at the moment, there seems to be a climate where it's, it's more, a more mainstream climate in the film industry at the moment, particularly with the um, nominations for Best Film at the Academy last year. Um, do you feel, um, being the sort of director that you are and the sort of film, films that you direct, do you feel that this is a good thing for, for the industry itself? Um, well, I think it's good, it's, it's good for the cinema game public, really. I mean, it just introduces a bit of diversity into what's available. And the, the documentaries that are made, you know, the Michael Moore documentaries and others, there was a beautiful French documentary about a school. I think the re-emergence of the documentaries into cinema, whether political or just observational, whatever, I mean, it's good because it just gives us a, a better choice. And, um, I, mean, I mean, my feeling for what it's worth is that, is that cinema should, should be absolutely diverse. You know, I'd, I'd hate to be prescriptive and say... Film should be this way, it should be that way. They should be absolutely diverse. And the tragedy is that it, it's so, the choice is so narrow, really. Take a question down the front row there, please. How do you, when you're coming up with a political issue, but you're making an aesthetic expression of it, how do you not let the work turn into a work of propaganda or let, uh, the politics dominate what you're trying to say Aesthetically, well, I, I mean, it's it's a good question. I mean, it, it's one that constantly recurs. I think w one one thing, one factor in all this, is that these are very politicising times. The, the 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 events that these people went through absolutely politicised them, and they that was part of their life. That was part of their what they were engaged in. Were those ideas? Were those judgments? Were those loyalties? what they were actually fighting for, the island they wanted, all that, when you're, when you're involved in that, I never have been, but when people are involved in that kind of struggle, they become politicised. And therefore, I think it's quite legitimate that characters, as they do in real life, express those ideas and fight over them, and loyalties, are, personal relationships are broken up because of them, and so on. And it's an absolutely legitimate subject for drama. I think it's, you know, I think it's brilliant drama. I'm not saying this is brilliant, but as a location for drama, it's, it's, a, it's a brilliant area. The, then it's a question, but you still have to develop <coughs> characters that are rounded, that are rooted, that have a, a history, <coughs> that have a set of relationships, that have their own kind of personal priorities within that. And, and that all wrapped together is, is the conflict that you try to put on the screen. And the arch of the story, if, if you get it right, just by telling what happens to these people, you'd say everything you want to say about that subject. You know, just by them being who they are, 
resolving the contradictions that, they, that are there at the start of the drama. Just by resolving those contradictions and all the, and the outside forces, again, following the logical course that they would follow, then the drama, if it's the right one, has a kind of inexorable drive to a resolution, which in this case is a, is a tragedy. But I think that <clears throat> that's what we've tried to do. But the problem is, I mean, when people, you know, everybody comes to a film, they bring their own baggage, you know, like I have baggage that I bring, audiences have baggage, and the, and, you know, and what's in, in their, what, and maybe I should say what's in your minds is um, maybe a predisposition towards this position, that attitude, or a predisposition towards the other. And therefore you read it according to those predispositions. But I'd, just in a simple way, I think people often mistake a character making an argument for a propagandist film, and I, I dispute that, because there are many different arguments in this film, so which one's the propaganda one, you know? But do you think the, the further away in time that an audience is, I mean, culturally, from a, from a politicised culture, that less likely they are to find political drama which, which, is, which is full of political ideas passable? Do you think that's probably the case? But the more, I mean, you, 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 make, you make the strong point that this, this was a time in Irish history when political debate was current, was, was vital and was essential. Mm -hmm. But the more, the more an audience is actually removed from a culture where that's true, do you think it becomes more difficult for them to accept yes. political drama? Yes, yes, I, I, I think that's true. And I mean, we're, I mean, no, you're almost given a health warning, you know, if anybody is coherent for three or four sentences. I mean, the, the <laughs> film has a health warning, you know, God, don't get this. It's, yeah. You might actually listen to someone speak. <laughs> Dreadful. Mm -hmm. Can I take one? There, please. Um, if we transpose your story and characters into more recent times in Ireland, uh, do you think any of your characters could have carried out the bombing in Omar? I, I think that's a hyper, it's impossible to say. Um, I think, um, I mean, you could have asked, could they have carried out the Dublin and Monaghan bombings, Monaghan bombings actually, which were uh, put together the biggest, you know, as I'm sure as you will know, the biggest atrocity in recent troubles carried out um, the evidence, or the people say, by collusion between the security forces and the loyalists. I mean, I, 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 guess, I guess people get driven into extremes. Um, a lot of water's gone under the bridge since since these events and, and the water that went under the bridge drove people to further extreme positions, I guess. I ask the question because I think you were at pains in your films to, sh to really show the reality of violence and warfare. And I think when, like me, you're removed from that situation, it's, it's very difficult to un understand. And yet somehow there, there must be a way of, of coming to understand why acts of violence like that occur in, in a civilian society, like Iraq, for example. Yes. I, I think it's very complex. I mean, people get driven, driven into extreme positions. Um, I mean, you know, when we're talking about the armies of occupation, I, I think that one can see how, how the culture uh, arises that... Um, that the people that are being occupied are treated as less than human. Um, and there was a very interesting, I didn't jot it down, but there's a very interesting report by British Intelligence. I think it was the official report after these events, in, again, in the early 20s. And it referred to the Irish as having a lower form of civilization and uh, being of their cowardice and their dishonesty. Now, if that's the culture in the official report, God knows what the culture in the barracks is. You know, of, of how people are treated. And then if you treat people like that, then you can do terrible things to them. 
you know, witness the Haditha, if it is a massacre in Haditha, the uh, My Lai massacre in Vietnam. I mean, the history is littered with these examples, isn't it? And as you say, the Omer bombing and the Dublin and Monaghan bombings. Second, another one up the top, please, top right. Uh, sorry, Ken, I just want to ask a quick question. Do you think actually uh, journalists should be held responsible for their actions? Bearing in mind there was a um, highly respected program two weeks ago, three weeks ago, on a certain channel, and an interviewer was quite um, antagonistic towards you. And it's a quite respected cultural program. Um, <laughs> well, I know it's a stupid question, but... No, well, I mean, that's part of the knockabout of doing this sort of stuff, you know, I mean, people will will have a go. Um, it doesn't bother me too much. Um, you know, if you draw blood, then it shows you're doing something. But, um, I, I mean, I think, I think editors should, obviously. But, the, you know, the editor's there because the people who own the newspapers want the editor there, knowing the kind of judgments they will make. And the same is true of uh, news editors in broadcasting. They're there because they know the rules, you know, and they will, they, more precisely, they pick the point of balance in any argument, right at the, at the point which it will satisfy the establishment. And that's why the editors get their jobs, seems to me. I mean, that's why all the 30-odd years that we've been hearing news stories about Northern Ireland, we've never heard the question of partition. I've never heard the question of partition put. Should Ireland be divided? And yet it's the basis of the conflict in the North. I've never heard that put. You know, because they pick the point of balance. You know, the question is put, uh, why should the Unionists do business with the Republicans when they've still got weapons? Is usually the question as it's framed. But whether there should be partition or not is never asked. Um, so I, I think, sorry, I'm, I'm going off the point rather, but I, I think your, your point is should, should journalists be held responsible? Um, well, that'd be a great day. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take the question I missed there. Yeah, that was you. Yeah, we don't have a great tradition of political filmmaking in this country, and I know that um, a lot of your films have been financed almost entirely from abroad, and I wonder if that was the case with this film. Yes. Um, the uh, producer uh, triumphantly secured, I think, over 20 different sources of finance, mainly from uh, Europe, some from Britain. The Film Council were supportive, uh, some from Ireland, and the, the advantage of having different sources is that nobody has you by the throat. Because if, if you've got one, one person holding all the money, they can tell you what to do. If, you, if, you know, if it's split around and somebody from, from, one, from here says, well, I, you know, I don't really like this bit, could you do something different? We can say, well, the French, that's the French's favorite bit, really. So <laughs> you've got to go and see them. So that, that's, um, it, it can work to our advantage. So it, it's quite a <laughs> I think, I mean, that, that question puts the finger on, on the fact that... Um, your, your, I mean, many of your films have been, have been very popular and more popular um, on the continent in Europe than, mm. than here. Mm. I mean, in your, in your experience of that, have you, have you come up with a reason or, or a theory as to why that, why that has sometimes been the case? Um, I don't know. I, it's, you can't really be exotic in your own, mm. in your own home, can you? you know, you're, you're just, oh God, it's just the stuff we see every day. Whereas um, in another country, it, it's, still, it's still familiar, I think, it's familiar, the, the dramas are familiar, but it, it has a, an ex, this slightly exotic touch of being from another country. Mm. I think that's a small part of it. I think a bigger part is that 
particularly places like France and Italy, have different cinema traditions. You know, you think of the French René Clair and Renoir and then the French New Wave and then with Italy with the um, neorealists and Eastern Europe cinema with Weider and Russian cinema, Swedish cinema with Bergman, Bunuel. I mean, it's, it's a very rich cinema tradition and quite an intellectual... I mean, I wouldn't claim to be intellectual in, in the way they were, but I mean, it's quite an intellectual tradition. Uh, whereas here we, we do tend to look down on that a bit. And um, I mean, I think we're, because of our shared language, we're much more susceptible to American dominance. I'm going to take a question from that slide, then I'll, I'll come back. Um, yes. Yeah, I was uh, just thinking the one voice that didn't occur in the film uh, was a voice calling for pacifism. Now, maybe at the time, no one. Uh, argue for pacifism, and maybe in that state of a military occupation it's impossible uh, to take that position. But uh, were you at all tempted to try and introduce someone who could have actually said something that, if they'd been listened to, then maybe everything could have turned out with a lot less bloodshed? Um, we didn't think about it, I mean, mainly because we didn't come across it in, the, in our reading and talking to people. I think it's very, the, the pacifist option is really quite difficult when, when as an act of policy, this, as the guy said, the civilian population is being terrorised. I think, I think it's quite difficult to make that stick. I mean, obviously, I don't know enough about Gandhi in, in India, but that was, was an element there. But it, it, um, we couldn't trace anything like that in, in Ireland. Maybe Gandhi learned it after watching what happened in Ireland. Well, maybe he did, yes. <laughs> Can I take a question there, please? Hello. Um, it seems to me that there was a lot of material and viewpoints you were trying to capture in the film, and it seemed like it was quite difficult, I think, to sort of balance it all together. And I was just wondering if there were any scenes that you were kind of battling over and that ended up on the cutting room floor, and what were they? <laughs> um, yes, there, was, there were quite a, quite a lot on that we, um, that we shot and didn't put in. No, no, really. There were several little short scenes, but um, nothing really major. There was a scene when Sinead is taking the message right early on, and she's stopped on the road by a group of uh, a group of soldiers, and they they have some banter with her because she's a pretty girl. And but it it didn't really work very well, so we we dropped it. Um, I mean, it, it was it was quite loaded. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't just good-natured chat. I mean, there was, a, so we didn't cut it out because it made the tans look good or anything. I mean, we just cut it out because dramatically, it just didn't work. That was it, really. We we, we had to shoot it very fast. Uh, we we had seven, had 35 days to do it, which was pretty, pretty quick as films go. So we, we had to be pretty disciplined about it. Um, you take a question there, please. Uh, as the reactions you got, do you not wish that maybe you could have pushed the film further? I mean, as you've seen, you received these reactions anyway. Could you have pushed it further, maybe, from what you'd heard in the stories? And... Um, could we have pushed it further? And, well, we, we did the film that, that we felt we needed to make, um, or we ought to make, so... No, there was, there was no further point we wanted to go to. Um, and we just felt that, that was the... For those, for those two men and for, the, for that column, that was, that was the story. 
that was the story. Because you know, I mean, Im- implicit in, in the film is the fact that the, the Republicans are going to lose or the, the, um, the, the free state is going to be established. So in a sense, that's the end of that, that's the end of that story for them. You know? and, and, and the tragedy reaches its conclusion when Damon is shot. Um, and, and as he falls, you know, the, those ideas fall with him. And I know that the film's being released, obviously it's being released here tomorrow, and it's been released yeah. simultaneously in Ireland, um, I think on many, many more, many more prints. It's going to go out on many yeah. more screens, which seems in many ways natural, as well as a reflection of our distribution system probably as well. Um, I was wondering how, we've, we've talked about the reaction, some of the pre-release reaction has been in this country. Have you, have you got much of a sense of a reaction in Ireland, or of a different reaction, or of yes. a writing commentary? Oh, the, the reaction in Ireland has been extraordinary. Hmm. I mean, it's absolutely been extraordinary. Um, a lot of newspaper pieces, both uh, supportive, mainly supportive, hmm. um, have to say, and of some critical, naturally. There's a long discussion to be had about uh, Irish revisionist Irish historians who are, um, which is a long, it's, 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 it's a good discussion, but it's probably not for now. Uh, so there have been some critical voices, some really terrific responses. Danny Morrison, who I, I've not met, but have spoken to, uh, corresponded with, uh, but he wrote a piece uh, saying that he and a fellow Republican did not see it at all as a recruiting sergeant for the IRA, but... Um, sat and grieved really through it and uh, I mean I think that you know given the story of those years is, is seemed to us a very appropriate response really. one more question I think from the audience because we're going to have to wrap up take one down there um, in terms of your personal philosophy and uh, particularly, your, particularly your politics um, and the way you make films these days how far do you feel you've come since Cathy come home <laughs> oh well um Oh, God, I don't know how to answer that, to be honest. I mean, it's, um, it's been a long road, really, with a, a few ups and downs. Um, I, well, um, I mean, Cathy Come Home was a pretty crude piece of filmmaking. Um, and the, the biggest change was working with a cameraman called Chris Mengus, who taught me to look at light and to, that what happened in front of the camera was more important than what happened within the camera. And so, you know, what we've worked at over the years is to set up something that's, that has some emotional truth as well as physical truth about it um, in front of the camera that, that is played out in front of the camera, which you then photograph with some, try and photograph with some empathy. And also, since working with Paul Laverty, who's the writer I've worked with last long, long time now, nine or ten years, really to, we become much more interested in, in the, the kind of psychological aspects of the, the characters and, and their maturity and, and the, the kind of roots that they go back to. So we've, we've wrestled with that, really. Um, and like the two brothers in this, I mean, we, how can I, I mean, there's, there's a kind of hinterland there that uh, I hope sort of makes everything ring true, although we didn't put a huge amount of it in the film, but there's, we, we hope there's a kind of iceberg, you know, submerged part of their relationship which is just hinted at, even, in, even before the audience know their brothers, when, when, they're, um, when Damien's taking the oath. Teddy says to him, I, I knew you wouldn't get that train, I'd have kicked your ass if you had. And, uh, which in a way is the kind of patronising thing an older brother 
can say to his kid brother. And by the end, Damien's eyes hold him and Teddy has to look down. And in a way we felt that was one way of reading the film, you know, that, that, that relationship which had, which had started as kids when they were the best of mates and then the one gets sent away and when he comes back has to prove himself as the elder brother, the man of action. And so in a way, you know, we just felt there was, or tried to imply a lot of roots there, you know, going deep. And I suppose that aspect of it has, we've got more and more interested in. Have you and Paul Laverty found a way of working which you now, you now bring to each film, or does, does, it, does it change a lot? It, it, it changed a bit because he lives in Spain. Mm. And um, so, you know, a lot of, uh, of turning frame has to go on. No, based, no we, we, we just knock it backwards and forwards, really. Yeah. But Paul writes it. I, I wouldn't want to claim any credit for the writing. I think we're going to have to wrap up there, so I'm just going to thank you, Ken Loach, for being here tonight. Yes, and thank you, thank you. Thanks for listening to this Barbican Screen Talk with Ken Loach. If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or Acast, or visit barbican.org.uk slash screentalksarchive. And we'd like to hear from you. Tell us what you think of The Wind That Shakes the Barley on social media. You can find us at Barbican Centre. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.